0: Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Tom McMillan, who's the founder and principal of Market Climber Investor Relations. I'm looking forward to our conversation because I've known Tom for well over a year now and we've got to know each other. And I've seen and started to understand his experience in investor relations. And I think there's a lot that we can take away from this. So Tom, I think the best way for us to start this off is to get a background on yourself,
1: uh, your, your career. Sure, thanks Corey. So as you mentioned, my name is Tom McMillan. I've been doing investor relations for about two decades now. Prior to that, I was actually in the field of science before doing my MBA. So I'd like to think that I bring a bit of a scientific method and process to the investor relations function. I've had the privilege of working both on the agency side and internally for a number of companies that have gone through massive turnarounds uh, in terms of their fortunes and their ability to deliver value for investors. Those companies include Parkland Corporation, Stantec, and saw great success
0: uh, in a number of different mandates. So happy to be here, and thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay. Some of the the areas I want to focus is when we talk about investor relations, and actually, I, I like the the point you make about a scientific approach to this. Talk me through the process. What is a solid investor relations program in your view?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I always think of investor relations through four different pillars. So, you know, you want your program to be credible, uh, clear in terms of the message, compelling and well-connected to the market. So there's there's both science and art to investor relations. I think part of the process to begin with is to understand the message that's going out to the market and understanding whether or not that message is actually being understood by the marketplace. And so what I like to do as part of that process when we start with a client is to understand what does the market actually think of the company? Does the market understand what the company is saying? We often get uh, management teams that get lost in their own dialect and speak a different language than the rest of the hmm. marketplace. And so part of the job of investor relations is translation and education. So you hmm. take the message from management and you translate it so that people can, the layperson can understand it. And then from there you make it compelling using the various visual tools that we have available to us. And then after you've done that, then you connect it to the marketplace using both targeting technologies and the various channels that you have to the investment community, some of which are under leveraged by a lot of corporations. So that's part of the process that we bring
0: to companies. Yeah. I want to go deeper. Let's start with perception. Oftentimes I've watched presentations where you have CEOs, uh, they might be very talented in what they do, but they speak so deeply to the details and the technology, to the the or grades, to the rates, to the, to the dialect, as you put it, of their specific business that they fail to fail to communicate to those who actually buy or can buy uh, their stock. So, how should we go about starting to adjust perception and communicating better with the buy side, the sell side, and all the market participants. How, how do we do that starting with perception? I think
1: there are so many ways to walk past a deal. And one of the ways is that management takes for granted their own story. They they take for granted the key selling points of their hmm. investment thesis. And they they just they know it inside and out and so they just walk right past it without really focusing in on the key messages that are really relevant to investors. Instead, they're focused on the day to day. They're focused on the things that are burning priorities in that moment that will often be, you know, could be investment detractors versus the big picture of a very successful organization. So, part of ensuring that perceptions are aligned to the reality of the company is having a third party come in with an objective viewpoint and being able to lift management teams out of the weeds. Hmm and ensuring that they're not essentially walking past what are the the key selling features of of their company. The other way that we analyze perceptions in the marketplace and whether or not management teams are getting it right is we do perception audits. So we'll work with companies, identify members of the sell side and the buy side that we will then go out and talk to. And because of our, first of all, our relationships, and then the fact that we're third party and we keep the feedback anonymous, we get real feedback from the capital markets on, you know, where management is hitting it out of the park and where management is missing. What are some examples of that feedback? Um, you know, I've never done a, a perception audit that hasn't delivered actionable feedback. So, it could be anything from a misunderstanding about a key feature of the organization, a key, like a misunderstanding about the macroeconomic drivers of the company. You know, obviously, we keep the actual results confidential client yes. by client but we will or you know there can be misperceptions about you know management their focus the management brand all of that so we we tease those details out in these interviews and then feed that feedback right back to management so they know exactly what's going on
0: so once we have that I've always viewed the investor deck as when it comes to the market that is your that is your go-to starting point for creating conversations and delivering the information that Uh, the market needs to start to make a decision. How do you then create a a term that that I've heard from you and I really like it, investor-grade materials? What are investor-grade materials and how do you take the messaging, the perception from the market and start to integrate that into those materials? And I actually ask this not as being internal, but also working with clients and having, having them listen to what you're saying, if you know where I'm going with that.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to say this probably in a different way than what you're looking for, but okay. if you're if you're a 100 million dollar company, when I say investment grade materials, we want your investment deck to look like a billion dollar market cap company. Mm. We don't want it to look like a 10 million dollar market cap company. And so, you want to be punching above your weight in terms of the quality of materials, events, webcasts, presentations, anything that you're putting in front of an investor. It needs to make you look more credible than perhaps where you're trading at today. Hmm. And if it's, if it is a downgrade, if people look at your presentation or your materials and they think, huh, this doesn't actually look as good as, you know, a company that's trading at this, this level, that's a real problem. We have a lot of, a lot of companies out there that are, are using subpar materials. It's investor brand perception if you want to go out to the marketplace and look like a competent management team and a competent company, you better be hitting above your weight.
0: Hmm. And it, it reminds me of another uh, conversation I had with, with an IR pro and they said, dress for the job that you want. And that's a great, it's a great And I really quote. thought the analogy was so, yeah, spot on. Absolutely. Hit, hit above your weight, dress for the job you want. Let's also talk about technology and communication when it comes to investor relations websites. And Uh, Q4 is an example. Daryl Heaps was on the podcast and had some really interesting things to say. But where I look at something like a Q4, and there's other providers out there, they provide a standardized destination for investors to come get their information. Mm -hmm. And the way I see this, and I'm wondering if you, your thoughts on this, but I see it as a user experience. How do you reduce that friction so an analyst can come in, know where they're going to look, get what they need, and get out so they can do their job Mm -hmm. and not give them some runaround of a poor visual experience or a poor navigation experience. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Q4 is fascinating. So they've established the de facto industry standard for investor relations websites, and they've conditioned the audience to know what tools and where are those tools located when they're interacting with a corporation's website. And so I think the level of market dominance that Q4 has established and the fact that the audience is now conditioned to those websites, add to that the level of integration that they have with their back end of you know, their investor relationship management system, the fact that they can monitor people uh, that are on the website to cue you as an IR professional to mm-hmm. potentially do some outreach. It's, it's a very compelling solution. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: What are the other options that you've seen out there that compare?
1: So there's, there's a number of ways to skin the cat when, it lo- when you're looking at your overall investor relations communication system. And so you can use a combination of services that are provided by newswires and website providers. You know, I would say that Q4 probably provides the most comprehensive solution. And of course, no solution is 100%, you know, yeah. perfect. But, uh, you know, you can use a different combination of services. But the idea at the end of the day, whether or not you're using Q4 or a combination of other, other tools, you really want to ensure that you're not missing investors coming into the very top of what is a sales funnel. And so you want to, first of all, receive investors into a sales funnel and then structure your engagement with the investor as they come through the sales funnel very carefully yep. so that you're diligent about building and maintaining that relationship up to the point and after they make an investment most companies i think where they fall down is they overlook they may buy an investor relationship management system but whether or not they're utilizing it is their you know the centerpiece of their investor relations program and in terms of their workflow that's another question mm-hmm. and so i i like to say if you're not using your investor relationship management system you don't have an investor relations program
0: you're missing out yeah well you're trying to manage relationships yeah i think that drawing the analogy between sales and marketing of a product or service, it's directly applicable to that of marketing and selling your stock, selling your stock to the market in essence. Mm-hmm. And y- y- you have a funnel, you you bring people in from their initial awareness, whether they're retail or institutional, and you hit on the points that are relevant to them. And I think that's some of the, the greatest things about like, uh, you know, the, the Irwin's BD corporates and Q4s is you can see who's, buying your, compar- your, your competitors. You can see who's visiting your website. They're demonstrating intent. And then with that, you can help take them a step further, bring them a step closer and take them from an online engagement or online interaction into offline and start having real conversations. So I just feel that the market or that a lot of public companies seem to miss that draw from sales and marketing a product and a service to the sales and marketing and investor relations.
1: Yeah, I think there's... Uh, I, I think there's re- reluctance to talk about it as a sales process because really it's what you're trying to do is educate. You're, you're really trying to educate investors, analysts, all the members of the capital markets versus selling or promoting. Like, let's let's yeah. be clear on that. But it's still a relationship-driven process. The only thing that drives valuation for any companies is trust at the end of the day. And you earn trust by, first of all, underpromising and overdelivering making sure that investors understand fully what they're investing in. And so that's really, that's an educational process. And where companies fall down is, again, they take advantage or take for granted, you know, how to talk or how to explain what their company actually does in very simple terms. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, it's a relationship driven process. We don't like to call it a sales process because that seems very promotional, but it is, you, you know, you're educating, you're educating what is somebody that's, going to invest in your company.
0: Sales can be a four-letter word, but educating yeah. people is part of a sales process when it comes down to it. So Absolutely. absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Take me back to, to your time at Stantec. As I understand, when you first started, there were $2.5 billion in market cap, and you saw that company grow and were integral in helping the market recognize and realize the value of that. Walk me through that process as well as the time that it takes, because I think that there's an expectation these things happen overnight.
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. You know, Stantec is a sort of a textbook example where management had the insight to go out, uh, do a perception audit. I was brought in to analyze the results of that perception audit and shape the launch of of their long-term strategy. And that was really the mandate. And eventually I was hired internally to be their VP of investor relations and to manage their, their day-to-day investor relations program. But I think starting from the standpoint of analyzing what perceptions are out there uh, especially when you're in a the process of a turnaround within the capital mm. market. So if you've had, you know, years of, you know, performance that's, you know, substandard relative to the rest of the industry, if you want to turn that around, you really need to understand where that sentiment is coming from. Okay. So they did all the right things even before contacting me, and then we took the results of or the information out of the perception audit and then applied it to the growth plan that we launched, and then really found or uncovered some hidden gems in their, in the overall story at Stantec. So Stantec had, at that point, they had established this incredible sustainability record, this incredible record of innovation, hmm. and they were really underplaying that aspect of the story. And so the job of an investor relations person is to look at a company's story and find sort of those hidden gems and ensure they reach the surface
0: that must change over time was the timing right for those buried gems of the sustainability track record they had was that timing right for kind of the emergence of ESG becoming really onto the forefront
1: absolutely yeah yeah it was very fortuitous i mean they had they have a great ESG team that have done amazing work and it just so happened that you know circa you know 2020 2021 we had this huge emergence and the importance of ESG and sustainability. And so it just, everything aligned, it was really great. And so we did, you know, part of it was ensuring that we had corporate access events for investors where they they were able to interface with multiple levels of management around the sustainability, innovation, um, and ESG components of the Stantec business.
0: So let's actually unpack that. Corporate access, investor access, and you're talking about uh, having, being able to have conversations with multiple levels of management investors. Mm-hmm. So, can you build on that? Well, you know, a
1: lot of times the companies that you know are actively marketing, going on non-deal road shows. It's very often the CEO and CFO that are hitting the road, interacting with investors, and there is huge value in bringing in managers of the operations themselves. So, this goes below the COO. This this goes to heads of different divisions of a company Mm. and allowing them to have a moment in the spotlight to talk a little bit about what their specific division is doing. Okay. And so this isn't just Stantec. This is any company that has multiple divisions that are generating value for investors. And to give that level of granularity of understanding to investors about how each division is contributing to the value generation of a company is incredibly compelling and powerful for investors.
0: Now there's only so much time in a day and only so much availability for these individuals uh, who would you want those those management level director level individuals to be speaking with like the heads of uh, heads of divisions if are they if they're speaking with analysts how do you prep them for that
1: yeah so there's quite a bit of preparation that goes into it i mean one of the arts that a ceo cfo or investor relations officer brings to the fore is the ability to talk about the business without selectively disclosing material information Mm. about the business. There's quite a bit of coaching at a level down when you're talking about divisional heads to really get them to understand sort of where are the guardrails of what they can and cannot say. So, you know, most companies will have their divisional heads involved in M&A processes and at any, any given time. And so they can't talk about those things. So you just have to have the checks and balances in place in their own minds before they get in front of investors so they know what they can and cannot say.
0: Yeah. I I think too when you're speaking with analysts as an example or or those who are looking to put serious money, meaningful money into your organization, understanding their mindsets as well. What is their framework? What is the model they're looking to fit you into Mm -hmm. so that you don't clash and and I one of my favorite sayings is a confused mind always says no. So trying to That's be a true. little bit preemptive and understanding who's coming at you and how they approach these things is, is important. I want to talk now about market relationships and the difference between the buy side and the sell side. And I feel that you're very pro sell side and helping develop those relationships and helping bring companies through the market by by leveraging those relationships. But some don't feel that. What do you have to say about it? Yeah. So I'd like to think that
1: our company is sell-side friendly. There are investor relations agencies out there that compete directly with the sell-side by providing corporate access, trying to do capital raises, and then also providing analyst research. Hmm. And so in doing so, they begin competing directly with the rest of the sell-side, whereas I view the sell-side as intrinsic to my ability to enhance the value for a company. And so creating positive sell-side relationships between the company uh, and the broker-dealers that are in the capital markets tends to lead to the best outcomes. Because you're there's a number of different supports that a broker-dealer can bring to a company. It's everything from providing analyst research, providing access to the broker network, actively trading their shares, and then also providing M&A advisory. And so even as a company that like maybe you're not thinking about M and A, but if you have a really positive relationship with a broker dealer, they may bring a fantastic idea to you and not your competitors, and that's a big deal. Hmm. And so, in my experience, in you know having worked in the capital markets for 20 years, you get to look at companies that are, you know, really really good at working with the sell side, and companies that are a little standoffish with the sell side. I think there's always this uh, feeling, and it's true that interests aren't always necessarily aligned. Okay. But understanding where those interests intersect and understanding how to beneficially manage those relationships for the best possible outcomes yeah. really differentiates great management teams from good management teams.
0: So what are some of those examples of where the interests intersect and come together and, uh, and how can you exploit those?
1: Yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, we've seen a tremendous change in the capital market. So we've seen the number of people working on sales desk decline. We've seen the number of analysts decline. You know, the typical analyst now covers between 20 and 25 companies. Wow. Which is incredible. Yeah. And so their interest, like if you can just get into the analyst's head, come reporting season, I mean, they are flat out. Mm-hmm. And so if you make your reporting difficult to understand, if you're putting your results out well after hours – And so they have to stay in the office till nine o'clock. You know, like you just got to start thinking about, okay, well, this is a human being at the end of the day. He's going to try and produce, or she is going to try and uh, produce a report about your company. Are you making it easier or harder for them Mm. in this context of where they've got 25 other companies competing for their time, competing for their attention, and competing for them to be talking them up to the sales desk? Right. So the better you are, to your analyst, the better the outcome. That's just a simple example. I mean, the other side of it and the concept that I've always held near and dear is that we all have to eat. You know, All our kids got to go to college eventually. So I think there's there's a bit of resentment towards you know, the monetary remuneration that, that the, the capital markets and the sell side receive as a result of the services that they provide. But if you do anything to threaten that remuneration or mm. to say that, we're not going to remunerate you. Yeah. They are going to direct their resources elsewhere. Not because they're not good people, but because the
0: reality is, is we all have to eat. Yeah, they got to butter their bread somewhere.
1: So, uh, we all got a job to do. We yeah. all have a service to provide. You know, the sell side provides a critical function for the capital markets and we can argue here that the capital markets have changed and you know, I hear a lot of management teams say the system is broken, but it's not so broken to say that the sell side does not have a tremendous amount of value to deliver to corporations.
0: Okay. Where do you see that, or where is the criticisms coming that it's that the markets are broken? And I think it's an easy just go-to. It's broken. Is it just broken or are you not approaching this the right way? I believe that everything comes down to trust. Okay.
1: Your trust and credibility as a corporation, as an industry, is the foundation on which you'll build any value for your shareholders. So if you squander your trust and credibility within the marketplace, it really doesn't matter how well you do. Nobody's going to trust you. And so the industries, the people that rail on about how the system is broken, generally, I think there's a trust issue there. And it may, it's not to do necessarily to do with them. They may be operating an industry that is looked upon unfavorably as a result of previous scandals, but yeah, once trust is broken, it's very difficult to revive. And it's probably one of the most important things to protect in the investor relations process.
0: Hmm. Now, let's come back to Stantec there because I think when you go through some form of turnaround, there's some degree of trust that must have been broken or expectations were missed. And how do you go about that? How do you start to, to rebuild that trust? And and again, I think it comes back to timelines. Like, How long does this how long can this take?
1: I've not seen a turnaround, so I've been involved in two pretty major turnarounds. So Parkland Corporation being one, and then Stantec being the other. There have been a few others, but a turnaround rarely takes less than two years, and can mm. generally take about three years. You know, by the time I left Stantec, we had improved their relative valuation. This is relative to peers by about five times or five turns. You know, we ended up winning the the. IR magazines, investor relations of the year award for mid caps. There was some really good work that was done there, but all of it, you know, it is a long term process and it's really about being consistent in how you communicate with the market, uh, being clear in your messaging and delivering results.
0: You know what I thought was really interesting was when you're telling me that even with Stantec, you were using social media mm-hmm. to reach out and engage potential new investors and not retail investors looking to buy a few shares, meaningful investors. Talk to me about that because I think that if some people might hear that and go, yeah, right. Yeah. So we ran a passive program
1: using promoted campaigns to essentially put non-promotional but relevant material in front of potential investors that we had identified through our targeting process. So these are major institutional investors that we identified through both cross-peer analysis and quantitative targeting that we believed were a good fit for Stantec. So we shortlisted them. We used passive campaigns to really softly introduce some of the good works that Stantec has been doing. So work around the sustainability piece, work around innovation, some really interesting things coming out of Stantec at the time, and then just essentially allowing them to engage with that material not as a, a strong promotion, but to warm them up to, to the story and mm-hmm. to the company. And so that ended up, we saw actually significant results out of that, that campaign at a fairly reasonable cost. And so it just broadened awareness yep. uh, of the company and an investor base that was at that time unaware of Stantec's value proposition. And uh, so in there in doing so, you're expanding the potential audience.
0: Yeah, that's well that's huge. And that's comes back to our marketing and sales analogy now. You bring new investors in, awareness, and ongoing consistent and compelling communication. There's a number of ways we can do that now. And and I mean everything from video all the way down. What kind of mix do you think is valuable or how do you approach putting together a marketing mix or a communications mix for public companies that are that are in that mid-cap space?
1: I think it really depends on, you know, what What does their calendar look like? What's actually happening in that year? Are they running a major event? You know, do they have a significant innovation to announce, a significant MA transaction to announce? I think that all plays into the selection of what media you're going to use. So whether or not you're going to use video or whether or not you're going to use a webcast event or whatnot. But at the end of the day, I think you want to use the best tools that you have available. So if you can leverage animation. Live video; these are more compelling pieces of media for people to engage with. Yeah, and so when we're in the social media environment, when we're trying to attract attention on the website, people are far more likely to engage with a visual or a live form of media. Yeah, than they are with a news release any day of the week.
0: You know, it reminds me of. Um, there's a few companies out there. One who's just doing, I think, an extraordinary job in the royalty space is Sandstorm Gold, and they've really come to communicate visually with their, the facts and figures of them as a royalty organization, which to me, I was like, wow, this it just looks so sharp and it's so easy to just like visually just see what makes them compelling, what makes them outstanding. And so I think it's a great reference point there. Let's move into talking about just bringing this all together and timeline. So if we're going to look Everything from perception through to consistent communication. I wonder if you can just sum this up in a few words for, for the listeners to to take something away to think about when approaching their own IR. Maybe if things that they can can consider that they're missing out on and how that could change potentially their, their programs.
1: Sure. So look, I mean, there's, let's talk about two scenarios here. Let's talk about, first of all, the company that's struggling in the market. You know, they look across at their peers the, the people that are competitive or the companies that are competing with them for capital, they seem to be doing much better than they are. They're kind of pulling their hair out because, you know, they're performing reasonably well. The market's just not getting it. Well, step number one, go have somebody go out and talk to your investors mm. and figure out on your behalf, what's where are things broken? Mm. Where's the gap? Once you identify that gap and guaranteed, if that's your situation, there's a gap in investor understanding. Mm. So you will find that out through an investor perception audit. So go out and do that. Next, you need to look at your communications to bridge those gaps. Uh, Once you've bridged the gaps through your communications and you've set up a messaging strategy that is highly consistent and you keep nailing it, then you've got to produce the compelling investor-grade materials and then ensure that they're connected to the marketplace. I'd say that if you're a company and everything's going just swimmingly, you're well-valued, the questions that you should be asking are are we religiously using our investor relations management system mm. to track identify and capture all the investors that we're interacting with and i just i don't just include institutionals you want retail investors to be collected in there and the reason i say this is that we live in an environment right now where there is quite a bit of investor activism mm. there are a lot of proxy contests yeah if you're just picking up the phone and you're speaking to a retail investor. There are some retail investors that hold significant shares. Yeah. And if you haven't captured their contact information and you haven't captured the nature of the discussion in your investor relationship management system, you don't have them to reach out to during a proxy contest and say, hey, last time we talked, these were the issues that you talked about. We have an activist. This is what they're talking to us about. We'd really like you to vote with management. So it's protective. It's protective. It also monitors and manages the the activity and the activity level. It allows you to report back to the board of directors in terms of what you're doing on a day-to-day as an investor relations person. Yep. This is an area of of oversight for a lot of companies. And so again, if you're not using your investor relationship management system, if you don't have one in place, you don't have an investor relations program.
0: That's a really powerful comment. And and you can see that the the potential pitfalls of not doing it like activist shareholders, not being able to actually engage with those is, uh, can lead to some serious issues. I want to switch gears as, as we, we aim to wrap up here. I'm curious about your career, 20 years in the markets. What's been the most influential setback you've had?
1: Oh, the most influential setback that I've had. I think <laughs> when I joined Parkland Corporation, they had just finished doing an acquisition. So they had acquired Blue Wave Energy. They had implemented an enterprise resource planning system. And without going into the details, I remember sitting in Treasury and just thinking to myself, what have I just joined? And what's fascinating, so there was a management turnover as a result of everything that happened there. We had Bob Espy come on as president. Mike Lambert joined as chief chief financial officer. And, I mean, these are phenomenal leaders, and it turned what was – pretty scary setback into an opportunity to turn a company around okay and so you know those relationships last to this day I mean we were all working away in the trenches to essentially you know make Parkland a success story and it worked out but uh, at the time I remember this sinking feeling Hmm. that like oh my god what have I done wow it worked out so better to be lucky than good okay okay (laughs)
0: Amazing. How about some media? Uh, what do you read? What do you listen to? I read a lot of The Economist.
1: I think I, I'm just fascinated by geopolitics and the economy, anyways. Yeah. So I read a lot of The Economist. I uh, read The Globe and Mail. As far as uh, like just entertainment, I read fantasy. So I'm reading The Silo right now. Okay. That's now like it's on Apple Plus. But yeah, that's what I'm.
0: That's nice. what I'm reading. You know, something I learned about Tom that I just think is amazing is you're true audiophile you've got this beautiful audio system with the what is the vinyl records oh it's very cool you know i have my dad to thank for that okay
1: so my dad is the audiophile and i inherit all the equipment that he doesn't want anymore (laughs) so and i'm happy to take it i'm happy to take it it's beautiful uh, it's very cool yeah it gives me the opportunity to listen to vinyl which is like you know it's such a a retro thing to do yeah it's really enjoyable
0: yeah very neat Final thoughts for the audience when considering their IR programs, what would they be?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll just go back to use your investor relationship management system. You make that the, the center pin of your operation.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.